Please open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29. Our life in exile. Many of our greatest difficulties as the people of God come from our own short-sightedness. And we forget the eschatological nature of our faith. We are waiting. We forget that God is guiding history to its proper end. We forget the missionary evangelistic role he has given us now. Sometimes we have a general faith in God, but not a dynamic personal belief that he has placed us exactly where he wants us and that his plans are beautiful, that our role is one of service to proclaim his gospel and that our current place is entirely variable. Most of all, we forget that we must listen to his word. Jeremiah chapter 29, we'll begin with verses 1 through 14. Makashaba, the Hebrew word for plan, God's curious plan. Look at verses 1 through 14 with me. This is the text of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exiles, the priests, the prophets, and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah, the queen mother, the court officials, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metalsmiths had left Jerusalem. The letter was sent by Elisah, son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, had sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The letter stated, this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat in their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may hear, so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it has prosperity, you will prosper. For this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says. Don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you, and don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them, for they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you. And I will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your welfare not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. 
This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore, restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place I deported you from. You have said, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. In verses 1 through 14 of this chapter, uh, we have God referring to his plan. Uh, the word makashaba comes from kasab, kashab, and it means literally to weave, but metaphorically to plot. And I want you to notice here, it, the, the chapter begins with a description of those who have been deported by Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar deported these. And yet, also, the Lord twice says, I deported you. And according to chapter 52, verse 28, the, this was the largest of the deportations. Men, women, children were ripped from their homes, from their culture, from their city, from the city that God had elected to give them. They were ripped from their culture, and they were planted in a hostile culture. It's 597. The young king, Jeconiah, was sent there as well. Nebuchadnezzar deported, but the Lord deported. I think that's a reminder to us that whatever anybody else does to us in this life, behind it, there is God. Nebuchadnezzar deported, but I deported. Now, this doesn't mean that God affirms all the evil acts of men, but God uses the acts of men in a sovereign way to accomplish his purpose, even as he holds all human beings responsible for their acts. I want you to notice that they were taken from that which they knew. And we love that which we know, don't we? In my own life, I have often wanted stability. As a child, my, my family moved every two or three years on average, and it was like ripping my soul out to take me and move me to a new place. And out of that, I became extremely introverted because the world was a dangerous place to me. And uh, through my whole life, I've had to battle this desire to just want to stay exactly here. And yet God says, no, I want you here to know where safety is. And yet God says, no, I want you to live in danger. And I dare say that our lives, your life, the church is at a point that it's going to have to decide either that it is going to do God's will in danger or it's going to seek safety in an unsafe place. Did you notice this? Even though they were taken from their homeland to Babylon, imagine Fort Worth conquered by Soviet Russia. <laughs> And half of our people, the cream of the leadership of this place, taken and uprooted and thrown into Siberia. That's the kind of picture you ought to have. Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. 
You know, Jeremiah, if you remember, he was called by the Lord to engage in a twofold ministry that of destruction and construction, that of uprooting and planting. Don't you know that he thought God's plan was curious when God said, I want you to tell them to plant and build, not here, but there in that foreign culture, that hostile culture, that place that is so anathema to them. God's prophetic work through Jeremiah had twists and turns that upended the whole cultural worldview of Jeremiah and of Judah. Imagine your culture's destruction, and then imagine that God has told you the ones that have destroyed your culture, you are placed there to minister to them. This is the place of Judah. And do you know what? This is part of God's big plan. Sometimes we get a, an idea of what God's plan is for our life, and it's very narrow. It's very minute, and it is right here, and we think that's the way it ought to be. And then God picks us up and puts us over here or over there or casts us on the other side of the world. And we wonder, Lord, do you know what you're doing? Oh, he does. He knows what he's doing. As a matter of fact, this is part of the divine plan for history for Judah. Jeconiah, do you recognize that name? You ought to. Go to Matthew chapter 1, and what you'll see there in verses 11 and 12 is that Jeconiah is one of the carriers of the seed of Abraham from which the Messiah would find a place. Oh, Jeconiah, do you imagine that young king terrified of all of the, the, that is occurring in his life, and yet God has a plan that's bigger than Jeconiah and that will take Jeconiah's name and ensconce it in divine history. And that's God's plan for you too, not to bear the seed, but to proclaim the seed, who is the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. Did you notice there in verse 9, Jeremiah says, don't listen to the dreams. You know, there are false prophets who provide false narratives, false eschatologies, false dreams of God's plan for history and our places in it. It's interesting, often they'll use the same language, they'll use the language of God. But then they'll take the God language that we know and they'll fit it into their own plans, into their own narrative. They'll rip the Word of God, maybe not literally, but in reality they'll take and rearrange the Word of God so that it fits their plans. And this is falsehood. When God gives you his word, you take it for what it says, not taking God's word and making it mean what you want it to mean. Look at verses 10 and following. He turns from the false dreamers, and we're going to come back to them in just a moment. But he tells them, listen, where you really need to be concerned is with this twofold direction that is required in your life. 
You see, they have been taken from the place of worship, and they've been cast into a pagan land. And Jeremiah says, you still need to look for God in a place where God's temple is not. And where God is, is in you and in your heart. And your heart needs to be totally dedicated, wholeheartedly committed to him. Search for God. Plant yourself for God. Notice the divine movement here. And then also, I want you to notice the human responsibility. There is a dialectic in salvation, according to Jeremiah. It involves divine grace from beginning to continually upholding it to bringing it to its proper end. It's all a work of divine grace, but at the same time, God says, you will. You must respond. You must seek. It is a divine grace, and it is a human responsibility. Notice how in verses 10 and following, read this again with me. I want you to notice I will, the language of the Lord, repeatedly from beginning to end. But you also notice, you will. This does not solve all the problems that Augustine and Calvin and Arminius think they have solved. They have not. What it does tell us is that God is entirely a God who gives us our salvation and it tells us that we must respond in faith and obedience to that salvation. For this is what the Lord says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you. I will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. It starts in grace, it will end in grace, and it continues in grace. Even now, God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans for your welfare, not for disaster. God has a plan for your life, and it is for your welfare, and if you will get in line with his providence, you will be blessed. If you get out of line with his providence, you will be cursed. So get in line. I have plans for your welfare, not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. And that is the biblical mindset. God has my future, and I trust in him. A future and a hope. You will call to me. You will call to me, the Lord says, and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You must will, he must will. But he proceeds, he undergirds, he follows, and he demands you to respond. You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. I will restore you to the place I deported you from. And just to make you sh sure that you know that this is God's word, he repeatedly says, this is the Lord's word. This is the Lord's declaration. This is the word of God. I will, and you will. Oh, what a dialectic. But there's at the same time that there is this inward, wholehearted movement towards God, there is this outward, 
engagement, this missional outlook towards the world. At the same time that there is personal piety, that personal piety must be demonstrated in public witness. Seek the welfare of Babylon. Pray for Babylon. And you know what? The United States of America is continually looking more and more like Babylon and less like Jerusalem. And we are to pray for Babylon and seek the welfare of Babylon. Shalom, welfare, peace, this wholeness that only comes from a right relationship with God. That is our message to America. That is our message to every culture. Seek its welfare. Yes, we need to preserve the pu church's purity, but at the same time, we must cross the cultural divide. There is no room for selfish sectarianism in the Christian outlook. We only are given place in this world to bear witness to this world of the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, that's not the end of the message. You see, he sent this letter, and it had... A negative response both in Babylon among the exiles and back in Jerusalem with the leadership of Jerusalem and it had a negative response both from the political leaders and the prophetic leaders so everybody received Jeremiah's message and many of them absolutely rejected it they didn't like to hear it what they preferred to hear was a twofold deception that was turning Judah from the plan of God towards the plans of man. And what's interesting is that these false prophets were taking and they were emphasizing the elect nature of Jerusalem, that this is God's city. They were emphasizing that God was going to bless Jerusalem. And Jeremiah said, not yet. <laughs> 70 years, 70 years is a long time. That meant that those who were cognizant of what Jeremiah was saying would be dead by the time that Jerusalem would be restored. And it was restored, 70 years. But God says, not yet, it is for the next generation. Oh, but man has a hearing problem, lo shema. Look at verses 15 through 19. You have said, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. Now, uh, Jeremiah's writing from Judah, uh, from Jerusalem, and uh, these prophets from Babylon are the false prophets. Uh, and so, uh, uh, back in Jerusalem, they're having an impact because they're communicating with one another by letters. But this is what the Lord says concerning the king sitting on David's throne and concerning the people in this city. So back in Jerusalem is King Zedekiah, and over there in Babylon is King Jeconiah. So this is concerning Zedekiah. Now, one thing that we know historically about Zedekiah is that he had a very strong party in Jerusalem that was constantly filling his ear and telling him that you need to rebel against Babylon. And we're going to take and we're going to rebel against Babylon and we're going to go back to the former glory of Jerusalem. Their slogan was, let's make Judah great again. <laughs> now, don't get political on me. This is, this is Jerusalem. 
And there's this message that we can take, and even though God's word tells us this, we're going to act in this way. God's word says, integrity, follow me, search after me with your whole heart, and I will bless you. And what they wanted are the blessings now. And the problem was, is they didn't want the one who is the blessed one. They wanted the blessings from the blessed one. And what God is saying is that if you will search after me with your whole heart, I'll give you the blessings, but I'll give you the blessing, which is a personal relationship with the living God himself. Oh, and then he brings up figs. Figs. This is what the Lord of hosts says. I am about to send against them sword, famine, and plague, and I will make them like rotten figs that are inedible because they are so bad. I will pursue them with sword, famine, and plague. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, a curse and a desolation, an object of scorn and a disgrace among all the nations where I have banished them. I will do this because they have not listened to my words. This is the Lord's declaration. Exclamation point, asterisk, bold, italics, underline, circle, highlight. This is the Lord's declaration. They have not listened to my words that I sent to them with my servants, the prophets, time and time again, and you too have not listened. This is the Lord's declaration. Figs. He's referring back to actually chapter 24 where he has a whole discussion of good figs and bad figs. Have you ever had figs? It's not necessarily a delicacy in our culture anymore, but uh, figs are wonderful. My great-grandmother had figs. Uh, she was a very godly woman. She bought her house right next to and behind the church, uh, and she had a gate installed, and she would just make her way from her home to the church and back to her home. And every time that we would go with her, we'd have to pass by the fig tree. And that fig tree was wonderful because, you know, it, it could get heavy and it could get big. And as children, we could go and play under the fig tree. And, oh, sometimes in the spring it had a wonderful smell. But as the summer gets along, and if you don't pick those figs, guess what smells kind of come out from that fig tree? Those big, juicy figs begin to rot and as a child, if you're out there playing in rotten figs, you notice there's a smell. And you notice it's been glued all over you. And, and then your mama takes you and hoses you off because you smell so bad, you bad fig. Well, the bad figs are back in Jerusalem, Jeremiah says. The good figs, the blessings are with those that are suffering in exile. The very contrary to what they expected. When God puts you in what looks like a bad situation, you might as well say, thank you, Lord, because you know he has a better plan because that is actually a blessing in disguise. You thank God for whatever he gives you because his plans, though curious, are the right plans. Oh, well, the problem with the bad figs back in Jerusalem is that they're going to receive a curse. God does not bless bad figs. 
Why is there a curse? Look at verse 19. Because they have not listened. Lo shema, they have not listened to my words. The primary problem for any human person, for any human nation, is either ignoring or outright denying or subtly perverting God's word. Any preacher, any politician who uses God's word for his purposes rather than submitting his purposes to God's word is under a divine curse and brings desolation to any who follow him. Now, this is a message for us who are proclaimers of God's word. Dr. Allen talked about how proper theological method looks. It is text-driven theology, not theologically driven Bible study. The Bible first, the theology comes out of the Bible, and if you get it the other way around, you need to check yourself because you may bring, bring in a curse on yourself and a desolation on the people that you preach. Finally, I want you to notice this. Not only is he concerned about the political ramifications, he's concerned about their very souls. These popular prophets of lies. Sheker is the Hebrew word, and it means deception, falsehood. And the prophetic deception is the exact opposite of Jeremiah's language. Jeremiah says God will give you a future and a hope 70 years from now. And the false prophets say, you can have your best life now. <laughs> now, don't get political. <laughs> Look at verses 20 and following. Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles I have sent. There it is again. I deported you. All you exiles I have sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to, and then he names two prophets. Remember these prophets because you probably won't remember them anymore because their names are not good names. They are false prophets. Bad doctrine, bad ethics. The God of Israel says to Ahab, son of Coliah, and to Zedekiah, son of Messiah, the ones prophesying a lie to you in my name. I am about to hand them over to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will kill them before your very eyes. Based on what happens to them, all the exiles of Judah who are in Babylon will create a curse that says, may the Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. And we know from history that this was one of the punishments from the Code of Hammurabi, and it was often practiced even into the Persian period. Take a rebel, and what do you do with him? You show that people shouldn't rebel. You take and you roast them. And I don't mean they were giving them toasts. It's a horrible death. Why did God have this decreed as their punishment? Because, it says in verse 23, they have committed an outrage in Israel, a scandal in Israel, by committing adultery with their neighbor's wives and have spoken a lie in my name, which I did not command them. I am he who knows, and I am a witness. This is the Lord's declaration. What is the basic problem of these false prophets? It has to do with what they're saying and what they're doing. 
It has to do with their false doctrine and their false ethics. The problem with their false doctrine is that they're coming and delivering a message that is not from God. They're speaking a lie, a deception. And it shows in their lives because they are committing adultery. They have rejected Babylon as a culture, but they've adopted the pornography of Babylon. And there is a judgment to be had on these false prophets. Your doctrine and your ethics are in inextricably interwoven. The reason that people act like they do is often because it has to do with what they believe. And if you're struggling with a sin, you probably need to check your doctrine again, too. Proclaiming a lie, oh, this, this is a problem. Committing adultery, this is the indication that there's a problem. There's another false prophet. Look at uh, Shemaiah, uh, verses 24 and following. To Shemaiah, the Nehalamite, you are to say, this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says. You are in your own name, that's important, in your own name, have sent out letters to all the people of Jerusalem, to the priest Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, and to all the priests, saying, the Lord has appointed you priest in place of Jehoiada, the priest to be the chief officer in the temple of the Lord, responsible for every madman who acts like a prophet. You must confine him in the stocks and an iron collar. So now, why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth, who has been acting like a prophet among you? For he has sent word to us in Babylon, claiming the exile will be long, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat their produce. Now, Zephaniah the priest read this letter in the hearing of Jeremiah the prophet. And then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, send a message to all the exiles, saying, this is what the Lord says concerning Shemaiah the Nehalamite. Because Shemaiah prophesied to you, though I did not send him, and made you trust a lie, this is what the Lord says. I'm about to punish Shemaiah the Nehalamite and his descendants. There will not be even one of his descendants living among these people, nor will any ever see the good that I will bring to my people. This is the Lord's declaration, for he has preached rebellion against the Lord. Shemaiah the Nehalamite, Nehalamite. There is no place known as Nalam. In, uh, uh, in Jerusalem, Judah, that we know of. Uh, it comes from the Hebrew word halam, which means dream. So he is ne Shemaiah, the dreamer. He's got a dream. He's got a vision of what you can be again if you will just follow his message. And apparently he was a very charismatic individual because he could write in his own name. But that's the problem. A false prophet operates in his own name often. Sometimes he uses the Lord's name falsely. But he operates out of his own authority. That's what in your name means, in your own authority. And apparently people were believing him because he was a charismatic individual. Well, charismatic personalities do not declare truth. What declares truth is whether you align with the Word of God or whether you rebel against the Word of God. That's the measure of truth. And Nehemiah, or Shemaiah, the Nehemiah, writes and says, you need to silence Jeremiah. And he uses a word that means, according to bright, crazy fellow. 
or the Holman Christian Standard Bible, madman. The New King James, James Version says demented. In other words, sometimes the true prophet, like Jeremiah, is going to be called names that hurt. When I was a pastor, and even since, sometimes blogs, <laughs> people don't like the message that you're preaching, and so they call you names. Well, this, this happens. It happens to the best. It happened to Jeremiah. The problem is, is that, that Shemaiah has a narrative, a myth, a vision, a dream, a religious fantasy that is rebelling against God's declared plan for the people. This is the problem. And this is our problem. And this is the problem that has been facing us since the beginning. In the garden, the serpent gave to Adam and Eve a false dream. God just doesn't want you to be like him, but I will give this knowledge to you. And sometimes the people of God have been searching for that land, and they want the goodness of God, and they're having difficulty. Abraham wanted a home, and God gave him a tent. And the only piece of land that he ever actually owned for himself was his burial site in a cave near Mamre. Rome wanted stability, and in 410 A.D., they were overrun by the barbarians. And Augustine had to remind them that the city of man, the city of this world, is different from the city of God. And that God's plan for history is working in history in a way that seems curious to man, but God will have his way. I imagine my ancestors, they had to flee southern England because of religious persecution. They were Quakers that fled to Pennsylvania. One of them, uh, Ellen Yarnell, actually married Colonel Timothy Matlack. You remember him? He was the fellow that, that penned the actual Declaration of Independence that Jefferson gave the draft for, the one that's in the Smithsonian Institute. My, my family is ensconced in this country. I love America. I come from a long line of military heroes. I served in the military myself. I love the United States of America. But I can tell you this, my hope is not here. My hope is in that city whose foundations have been made and designed by God himself. Abraham had that hope. Jeremiah had that hope. Jeremiah tells us today, don't put your hope in the things of this world. And when God moves you, you move. When God tells you to go and talk to that person that you're scared of speaking to, when he tells you, you've got the gospel, now go give it to that person, but it looks dangerous, you go. Because that's God's will. That's how God works. He puts us in dangerous situations to glorify himself. 
They were intended to be a blessing. We are intended to be a blessing, and our blessing is in the future. I have given you, the Lord says, a future and a hope. He is our future, and he is our hope. You know, uh, just to end with this, I I had a a real heart crisis um, uh, back about a week ago because I got a call from the chairman of deacons of my church, and he wanted to know if I had a pair of Southwestern Seminary cufflinks. And I had... I I actually, uh, Dr. Allen didn't mention it, but I actually left Southwestern one time, and then I came back about the same time Dr. Patterson came back. And as a parting gift, they gave me a pair of Southwestern Seminary cufflinks. And I felt like the Lord told me to tell this man, yes, you know where he can get a pair, but I was thinking to myself, I earned those. (laughs) I love Southwestern Seminary. I don't want to give up Southwestern Seminary's cufflinks. <laughs> they're not even very expensive. They're, they're brass. You know, it's not silver or gold or anything. These are the old cufflinks. I understand Mrs. Patterson makes sure they're gold now. But <laughs> I, you know, and I thought to myself, Lord, what, why is there this struggle in my heart to give this man a pair of cufflinks? And so I texted him back. I said, you can... You can have my cufflinks, you know. He said, I don't want your cufflinks. No, 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 you can have them. That's the only pair I know about. He said, well, check with Mr. Hughes. So I checked with Mr. Hughes, and we kind of worked through the whole process. But I have to tell you, in my heart, that was a struggle because it didn't fit my plans to give up something that was really important to me. But you know what? Every vestige in this world has to be given up to the Lord. And I felt like the Lord said, here, take, give them up. And, and it, it hurt me to even text that, to give this up. But it was an indication to me that something was more valuable to me. As good as it is, there is nothing better. Even the city of God is good, but what's better is that coming city. So let your heart be in his hands. Let your presence be wherever he puts you. Let your future and your hope be according to his word. He has a plan. Let him guide your life. Amen.